Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Mark Dennison. He's the director in the Division of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at uh, Vanderbilt University. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, his research. So, Mark, thanks for coming. My pleasure. Yeah. Tell me, what... Um, what were you working on before March of this year, and, and what are you working on now? Well, I was working on uh, I was working on preparing for this. Um, I've been working on coronaviruses since my fellowship in infectious diseases, which I, won't, I hate to say it is 1984 because I noticed a lot of your people on your podcast are a lot younger than that. But uh, I've been working on coronaviruses for a long time. Their biology fascinated me, and after the SARS and the MERS uh, epidemics and potential pandemics with SARS, we we're very um, worried about this, and particularly as more bat viruses have been identified over the last 10 years. So we've actually, before this, we were working on um, basic mechanisms of replication, but also basically trying to find uh, uh, compounds and drugs that would inhibit not just uh, old SARS and MERS and mouse hepatitis virus, which is a coronavirus, uh, but also other bat viruses. So we had been working on remdesivir for the last seven years before this epidemic. So um, the coronavirus family, what is uh, specific and unique to them and about them and their mechanism oh, well, or effects? Oh, well, where shall we start and how many podcasts shall we do? Um, <laughs> they... Uh, the, the original thing that captured my attention about their uniqueness was, this sounds weird, but uh, size matters. Um, the genomes of most RNA viruses, which cause most human epidemic or acute diseases, are about seven, between seven and 15,000 bases. And the coronaviruses weigh in at an average of about 30,000 bases. Most people didn't think, they thought that was just a weird product that wasn't fascinating. I thought they're living beyond the edge of what an RNA molecule should be able to support evolutionarily. And so that was the first thing that fascinated me. And then as we started to discover that they encoded this literal encyclopedia of proteins that attacked our immune systems or prevented our immune systems from working, novel proteins for their replication, novel ways they took over the host cell environment. Uh, And then with SARS and MERS, then it made me realize that they they may have a unique capacity for rapid evolution, adaptation, and movement between species. So is it rare in nature to see an RNA molecule that has that many base pairs? Um, I think it's, I think, I I used to say it's, um, so for an organism, so there are some spliced RNAs in cells that might get bigger than that, but they're exceptionally rare and there is no larger, well, until the last couple of years, there was no larger um, RNA genome in any organism, no larger RNA replicating it. Now there's a virus of planaria. Remember those little things you worked with in elementary school? Um, planaria, there's a planaria virus that's related to coronaviruses that's 40,000 bases. And it is really a weird monster. But, um, but that being said, the, fam- the order of viruses that holds coronaviruses within it evolutionarily is the, is the largest known replicating RNA molecules. There's nothing larger or more complicated or more potentially at risk. So what are some of the novel mechanisms? You said entry, 
recruitment of cellular machinery, transmissibility? Yeah. Like, what are some of these? Well, the one that we've been particularly, I mean, there's, I guess it's sort of whatever other virus of most, you know, for a long time, we had this field to ourselves in large part because it scared people away because everything about it was more complicated, larger genome, more proteins, more protein functions. Um, but the one that we found, I guess the group of enzymes that we found most particularly important is the fact that we discovered in our laboratory that coronaviruses, uh, this was now in 2007, are the first and to date only known organisms that actually encode an RNA dependent RNA proofreading system. You know, our, our, our cells and those of every eukaryote or every prokaryote, pretty much any DNA based organism, including viruses, they encode enzymes that are called exonucleases that are able to do proofreading. Basically they check mistakes. Otherwise we'd be chock-a-block full of mutations and there we'd, none of us would survive. Um, you know, they repair DNA, they repair damage. But RNA viruses like polio and influenza and dengue and West Nile virus, you name it, one of the reasons they're supposed, proposed to be so successful in nature is because they actually lack that ability. And so their polymerase, when it makes mistakes, when it's copying their RNA genome, uh, can't fix them. And so they generate this cloud of mutants called a quasi-species or a mutant swarm that surrounds them. And I, I, the analogy I use is sort of like the old... Uh, Peanuts cartoons that had Pigpen. Most people nowadays don't remember him, but he walked around surrounded by a cloud of dust and dirt all the time. Yeah, and that's remember, kind of yeah. like the, the viruses. They have the, the 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 dominant core species, and then they're surrounded by a cloud of mutants, and that makes them rapidly adaptable in lots of circumstances. But I always thought oh, that well, this was. Well, a, yeah, well, good question. So, are these quasi species, and what differentiates you know the I don't know the the gold standard virus versus the uh, species that are with it? Yeah, well, yeah, that's why they call it quasi-species, right? The idea that um, that the virus, if it replicates enough and makes just a few enough mistakes, that it can essentially, uh, an official mathematical quasi-species would be every potential mutation at every potential location. That isn't possible uh, numerically uh, for a virus to achieve, but they can have this swarm. The difference is maybe just one mutation in each. So in, in the parent, let's call it parent, and let's call it child A, may have one mutation, child B may have a different one, child C may have a different one. And so they actually are exceptionally closely related. And most of the time, those mutations will either be detrimental or they'll be neutral. They won't benefit the virus in any way. But if you create a selective pressure, like an antibody or a new host, new environment or a new temperature or a new cell, then maybe one of those ch child viruses with that single mutation might do better than the parent and would emerge. And that's why we're in that's why environmental viruses are so adaptable. If I have um, two viruses, one is we'll just call it the parent, one is you know the, the daughter that has I don't know two base pairs different, sure. and they each infect separate cells. Yeah. Will more variants arise from the infection of those cells, or is it the yes. variants are, yes. or the variants start out before? The host is infected they're just preserved even through infection yeah every, every time it's like starting with a new parent then if, if, if a daughter virus goes to a new cell it's like a parent to that cell and it will start over again so and and the only thing that the thing that maintains viruses as stable is the fact that if you think about it and most people talk about viruses jumping between species it's really more like a um a, a thousand mile high hurdles with a hurdle every five feet they, they have to get, they have to, you know, they have to get into a cell, they have to replicate in the cell, they have to avoid the immune response in the cell, they have to not kill the cell too fast, they have to make enough virus, that virus has to be stable in the environment, it has to move between new hosts, 
and it and it has to cause uh, not too much disease, but just enough disease to to transmit. And in the pop, and that's in a population as we've seen with COVID, right? With SARS-CoV-2, not everybody has to have severe disease. In fact, the virus thrives because that's not the case. So, so that is a really really fit virus for humans, right? And so there's not a lot of selective pressure against that virus because it's doing so well with with what it brought in. And so in that circumstance, probably the parent virus will continue to dominate until say there's a lot of immune response in the population and now suddenly a virus that can escape that immune response. But if I get infected by a given virus, I'm not going to be infected by just pure isolate of the parent. I would probably be infected by a million different quasi-species of that virus, right? Yeah, you may be, maybe. And boy, you know, you're asking some, this is some just unbelievably cool biology stuff for the viruses. So Maybe. Usually it's not that many, but uh, because a sneeze won't have, you know, if a sneeze has 10 to the 12 particles, you know, you're 15 feet away, you might get a fourth, right? So you might, that means 10,000, maybe. And there is some threshold beneath which you won't get infected. What's really interesting about quasi-species, this isn't my work, but I'll tell you something that, that, that dwells, that bears on it. What's really interesting is that in some viruses like polio, for the mass, mouse models, the, the quasi-species tends to act like a shepherd to shepherd the main virus species into the host and help it cause disease. So um, really? some model polios in, in mice, if you take a pure virus, a pure virus with no mutations in it, it won't cause neurological disease in the mouse. But if you expand that virus out and keep the main virus around, but you let the quasi-species expand, now it will cause disease in the mouse. So how does that work? No one knows, but it may be acting as decoys against the immune system. It may be enhancing the immune system. So it uh, irritates the cells. We don't understand it. But what it says is that viruses have evolved that anything that they're doing, they, they may act as a sort of a, a attaching to the cell. There may, there may, uh, some people think that there needs to be a population of viruses to actually infect a cell, that single, that single viruses aren't really good at infecting cells. So there may be some, um, some quorum grouping, some, some, some of that. There may be, they may act as decoys against the immune system. So they may attract the immune system sort of away from the parent virus, the innate immune system away from the parent virus and allow it to take hold. Um, they may all be taken up into the host cell and uh, interact with the internal uh, cell mechanisms in a different way to allow the other virus to hold. Um, and I'm, but I'm just, I'm, I'm flipping coins here. We don't really understand. Um, well, has anyone been able to observe when a virus infects a cell? I always thought it was like one virus, one cell, but yeah. uh, do, you know, uh, do cells get infected maybe by a bunch of viruses that maybe communicate through the cell membrane and then coordinate an entry? Um, it's possible. Um, some people are showing now that viruses actually don't work as a single virus, that they might work as a, a packet of viruses. Uh, well, Nihon Alton Bene from um, at, the, at the NIH has, has shown for some that, in fact, they, the vir cells may release viruses as packets, and that they, if you take individual viruses and you break them out of that membrane packet, that they don't work as well. So that's possible. Um, so, you know, there's... It, when, when we get into those fundamental levels, we're, we're, really, we're really doing sort of, I call it microcosmology. You know, it's, we're, we're, out at, we're out far away, we're, you know, we're out far away from our ability to really image and understand those initial events of how a virus needs to get into it. I, I think yeah, it's, you can, it's nanocosmology. Yeah. yeah, there you go. Well, you know, what we know is in some viruses, like there's a, there's a coronavirus called mouse hepatitis virus they work with, and in some cases, you it causes, it'll kill a mouse with less than one virus particle. In other words, you can't measure the virus particle anymore. 
but it's still enough to infect the animal and cause death and disease. So, so um, we, we are, are it's, we're limited a little by our tools. Well, why not look at a giant virus, a Mimi virus or other ones? I know mm -hmm. they don't act like every virus does, but if you can use light microscopy, let's say, to watch an entry, yeah. or what if you use a, you know, a bacteria that uses spike protein, uses a similar mechanism to enter and be endocytosed, perhaps you could shed light on how viruses coordinate if they do and how they enter cells at least. Yeah, well, we do, we do, um, and, and people do. Now there's fluorescent viruses, so there's ways, and you clearly can get one virus into a cell. I'm not saying they can't. I'm, I'm thinking, I, I keep remembering that we, uh, as we're studying things in a cell or in vitro, we are, we're creating models that are useful, but they're always wrong, right? They're always incomplete uh, because we're talking about what happens when a virus transmits through the air and hits my nasal pharynx, right? Hits my nose and hits cells. And, and how does that coordinate? And is a single cell infected enough to, uh, to initiate an infection and cause disease. So um, I, I, whenever I teach it, I say, yes, here's the mechanism. It binds to a receptor, it enters, it replicates in the metaplasm, et cetera. And, and we can study each of those mechanisms and we have. Uh, our area where we focused has been on what happens when the virus modifies the host cell factories and begins to copy itself. That's where I really in my lab. So, okay, so it's inside the cell, now it's replicating uh, so that's the focus of your study is how it yeah. co-ops the cellular machinery. Yeah. Well, no, no. Yeah. Well, we've, we've studied that the cell biology about how the virus modifies host membranes. That was some of my uh, fun, really fun work to see how the interior of a cell, but what our work has been focused on <clears throat> mostly in the last, well, the last 20 years, well, since my entire career, but, but really in the last 10, 10 to 15 years has been a unique enzyme that the coronaviruses encode this RNA proofreading uh, because we, you know, it, it brings us back. If I take it back to how the virus control mutations, you, you could argue a lot. Logical argument is that if you have a larger RNA genome, it's more at risk from everything that would cause mutations or breakage or damage. And RNA is supposed to be considered to be pretty unstable molecule compared to DNA because it's, so the question always was, is how do coronaviruses regulate that if, if some mutations occur? in little viruses, you'd have more mutations than a big virus like coronaviruses, and that would be detrimental or lethal to the virus. And we always wondered about okay. that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So so this error correction allows the existence, for instance, of a, you know, SARS-CoV-2 being 30,000 base pairs when otherwise it would probably be so error prone, yeah. it really wouldn't be viable at that so, length. Yeah. So that's the thought. When, when, and how that, how we did those experiments is this was predicted by a guy who, Sasha Gorbelania and some of his colleagues brilliant guy who just sort of gazed at the genome before it was possible to really, uh, really dissect out these functions and just saw what he thought were core enzymatic active residues. And he predicted there was an exonuclease there. And exonucleases are known to be proofreading enzymes in DNA viruses, but none had ever been shown for an RNA virus. So what we did is we took that, um, that proposal, that proposition, and we tested it genetically by, by making mutations at those, those predicted active residues. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. And what we discovered was when we rescued viruses, we could still rescue them. The viruses didn't grow as well, but they now made every time you, every time you, the virus grew, it made 20 times more mutations every time it copied itself. And so <laughs> it sounds scary a little bit to some people um, because now we've got a coronavirus that's a mutator genome that makes 20 times more mutations every time it replicates. Is that, would that worry you? Would you be worried about that? Well, it depends. If, if most <laughs> mutations are negative, then I wouldn't worry about those. And then yeah. two, uh, you know, if I'm going to anthropomorphize, but like you said, the goal, the virus doesn't want to kill the host yeah. too quickly. 
So is there a general path for viruses? Do they evolve, become, you know, commensal or mutualistic even? Well, uh, you know, I think, uh, remember, they don't, um, they've got no goals. They got no agency. They they got nothing that they, that, that, that proposes there's a direction. What we observe is what's left at the end, right? After what's happened for a long time. In fact, COVID is one of the rare, I, I'm not sure, actually, maybe the only time in human history where an absolutely brand new virus has entered into a population of seven plus billion people where there's no pre-existing. So that we're going to observe this in real time. And is this something that will, will take six months? No, it's not. Is this something that may take 60 years? It's possible. So that this, that this virus may take a long time before we see whether it's more virulent or less virulent. But um, I think back to your question about its, its survival, we, we actually tested this, you know, this hypothesis of is this virus risky? Because a lot of people were worried about us doing that kind of work, particularly with SARS. And so what we did is we actually tested by fitness, which is to co-infect cells with the wild type virus and with the mutant mutator virus. And what we showed was irrevocably, inevitably, 100% of the time, the virus with the increased mutation rate was less fit and couldn't survive compared to the parent wild type. And, and what we then did is we... Um, we also tested it and showed that in animals, it was always attenuated. Um, it was stable. It was stable mutations, but it was always attenuated after even 60 passages in mice. So it never regained virulence. And it kept throwing off huge numbers of mutations. And what we think is it's essentially like a check and checkmate. It basically kept introducing so many deleterious mutations that even if there was adaptation, it could never catch up. And so we went back then and and um, went back and also showed that the virus became much, much more likely to be impaired by, by molecules like nucleosides that would, uh, otherwise it was highly resistant to. So everything about it suggested this. And then finally, when we adapted the virus over a year, we passaged it for a year and it began to grow just as well as wild type. But what we actually discovered was that it really wasn't still wild type. It had tried to adapt, but those adaptations had actually locked it in place. And so it could no longer adapt to more complicated environments. So, so what, what we came around to was that the viruses, the evolution, uh, I'll call it um, <laughs> evolving evolvability. That mean, what I mean is that the virus has some reasonable set point that is mutation rate that's useful for every aspect of its biology, how it infects, how much disease it causes, how stable it is. And every single one of those is affected by mutation frequency. And this enzyme is the key, the lock and key, the keystone for every aspect of that. And so you throw it off, you make less mutations or more mutations, and that virus cannot survive over time. Well, um, is there a difference in the amount of this uh, error-creating substance that's produced in, during viral, repli- viral replication? Um, can you cause more <laughs> of this to be produced to yeah. kind of silo the virus into one, you know, a very narrow range of expression yeah it's a great question isn't it so can we can we force the virus into a hole so two ways you might want to go for example if we want to use a drug like remdesivir right that's a nucleoside analog what we've shown is that um, remdesivir works against the wild type virus but if we knock out this enzyme it even works better so one one way you might want to do it is do something to that virus that knocks that enzyme out so in fact when you introduce a, a drug like remdesivir, you actually kill the virus faster because it can't resist the introduction of the drug. And the other way you might want to think about it is you might want to stabilize and in, 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 uh, decrease mutation rate. And, and people have done that with other viruses that don't have this enzyme where they've made mutations in the polymerase that decrease the mutation rate. And those viruses seem to be kind of hyper-stable and unable to adapt over time to new environment to survive in the host. So either direction you throw a virus off, 
you can damage it uh, permanently. And so we've actually thought that this might be a mechanism by which you can attenuate viruses, any coronavirus, by doing, making these two mutations in any new coronavirus, you can immediately have a virus impaired and um, might not be able to cause it. Which seems more favorable to increase the mutation rate or decrease it? It's, um, so turns out that it's hard to do either direction. What's interesting is um, if you try to um, increase the mutation rate in any virus, other than a coronavirus, more than two to three times, that virus can't survive. And if you decrease it more than two to three times, that virus can. Coronaviruses seem to have a range more like 20 to 40, which is consistent with there being sort of promiscuous in every area, in every degree. Um, so um, for us, it's really easy to make a, a mutant that's, um, that has increased mutation rate because we just knock out this. It's really hard to get it. So it looks like the, uh, this enzyme is so good at controlling mutation frequency that it's been extremely difficult for us to find anything that's any better in the wild type virus at the best. So since it has a predilection to preserve itself, maybe it's better to push it the other way and further dampen its rate of change so that you can target it with an antiviral, let's say. Um, yeah, well, I, you know, I, we're, we want to do both because, because for us to, it's kind of fascinating to try to do what you said is to think non-anthropomorphically. Like try to actually spend time just thinking of everything, not from the virus did or the virus responded. It doesn't respond. It doesn't do. It just is selected. So there's, it's the mutations are stochastic. They're random. Um, that you and people talk about increasing mutation rate. That that only happens when we do what we did. You, you know, they talk about using a drug to increase mutation rate. That doesn't what happens. The drug may increase the number of mutations, but it doesn't increase the rate. And so it's it's a it's really hard to think that what everything that's happening is because of the circumstances around the virus, the mutations that may already to allow it to adapt to. Well, what happens if you take an animal that's infected with a virus and you give it a, you know a, a a drug that causes again the number of mutations to increase? The particular virus doesn't have this great error correction, mm -hmm. so you're you're kind of pushing it into overdrive yeah. in an already sure. infected animal. Would that help them clear the virus? Would that help them respond it, it, better? It it might. It depends. It, in in the very very short term, for example, it's possible that if I had an increased mutation rate and I put a, an antiviral in, that in fact that increased mutation rate might transiently allow for more mutations that might allow the virus to escape. So that would be transient, right? Temporary. Um, that's different than the long-term ecology of the virus and its ability to survive in nature. So because for the, for so many- the, For the purpose of being no. sick and, and getting well, transient's mm -hmm. probably just fine. So your immune response can kick in. Um, yeah, so repeat your question for me then, if I may have added. So if my goal is to help someone not die, of a given virus. Mm -hmm. Perhaps a method to test this is, you know, let's say you have an animal, you infect it with a given virus that has a very high mutation rate to begin with. Then you give that animal a drug that further amps up mutations. Yeah. Perhaps that would cause the virus to, oh. when it replicates, produce so many damaged or bad. We, yeah, we call that, uh, you know, suicide by mutagenesis, right? Or lethal mutagenesis. Um, yeah, in fact, um, in fact, we think that this exonuclease that we've identified if you could identify drugs that would block it, that in fact you might uh, so damage the virus in multiple rounds of replication, it might damage itself. Particularly if you gave a drug like remdesivir or or uh, EIDD 1931, which is a mutagen, that that you would enhance the clearance of that virus to work. And that's actually what it looks like happens um, when we use the uh, mutant virus. Much more sensitive to drugs. Well, with um, SARS-CoV-2, it's it, it sounds like it has a good error correction system so that it seems to be stable um, 
does that tell you that year to year we may not see, you know, like a vaccine may last longer than with flu, for instance, or like, so like what does it the, tell you? Yeah, this is another fabulous paradox, terrible beauty of the coronaviruses. So, you know, when we passage a, a coronavirus in culture in the same cells under the same condition temperature, we can passage our model coronavirus for a year and we'll see 10 to 10 mutations in the whole population, billions of virus. But if I introduce a mutation in that virus, that's highly detrimental. So viruses usually grow like 10 million viruses per ml or 50 million viruses. And if I knock it down to, if I, take, if I put a mutation in that virus, it knocks it down to a thousand particles per teaspoon. Within four to six hours, the virus will have a mutation that allows it to start growing. So it's all about selection. Um, coronaviruses, and remember, it's all relative, okay? So when we, when we our, our DNA is copied, it makes a mistake about once every um, trillion, trillion copies, something like that, or trillion nucleotides, something 10 to the minus 11th to 10 to the minus per genome or per nucleotide per genome, round of row. But most RNA viruses are like 10 to the minus three. So it means one mutation every thousand or 10,000. Coronaviruses are like 10 to the minus six. So they're still a lot closer to other viruses. They make a lot more mistakes than regular DNA viruses still. So even though they're fabulous relative to viruses, they still make a lot of mistakes compared to DNA, big DNA. Hmm, okay. So do you think then SARS-CoV-2, <clears throat> if a vaccine is found, do you think mm -hmm. they may have long-lasting uh, protection? I mean, okay. versus flu, which seems to need a new one every year. Well, um, there's, some, there's some differences, remember, between flu and coronaviruses, right? Flu has eight genome segments, and they do what's called reassortment. They mix and match. It's like all all your fingers in one hand are blue and all your fingers on the other hand are red and they both go in the same cell and the hands come out with every combination of blue and red. Okay. It's, it's, um, they, they can, that's how, that's one way they can really go fast. They also seem to have extreme sensitivity around that particular uh, surface protein that we make antibodies to. So flu drifts, we call it drifting slow mutations and it shifts by swapping fingers and those rapid, rapid. Coronaviruses seem to be more indolent. Um, the human ones that cause colds, tend to give us, we tend to be able to get them every couple of years. At least that's the data from the 60s and 70s when we didn't have the molecular mechanism to test what was going on. But that's been sort of the, the thought and the data that we have suggests that we can get these every couple, two to three years. Now, there's viruses like measles virus, for example, that there's kind of one serotype and that measles vaccine has been working for 50 years and it's still working. Okay. So we don't know where SARS-CoV-2 is going to go. And anybody that tells you they do doesn't. They're, they're making it. Okay, they're building it on some model or some hope or some optimism. I think we should be hopeful. So far, the antibodies that are made look good. The question is, are we trying to create an environment where we completely sterilize immunity, meaning that I can't ever get infected again with that coronavirus? I think if that's the goal, and the, if that's the goal, then that goal probably. And I, and I, but, and I don't think that, I think that's okay. It doesn't have to be immunity that prevents me from ever getting SARS-CoV-2 again. What we want is immunity for the population that prevents SARS-CoV-2 from circulating. And if it gets into the community, that there's enough immunity in the population or in an individual to prevent people from getting seriously ill or dying, to prevent vulnerable people from getting severely ill, to prevent people from in the hospital. And so that you have then the opportunity for, the, at that point then, what you might be doing is you might be starting to generate normal immunity in young children. And so as they grow up, they might not even need a vaccine, right? And it will look more like the human cold corona. Yeah, I've heard that uh, it's possible. You probably would know better than anyone that uh, because we've been around so many coronaviruses for so long that, you know, a certain segment of the population may have some 
you know, like T cell based immunity to SARS-CoV-2? Um, it would be, it would be heterologous, meaning it would be heter, you know, it wouldn't be, um, it wouldn't be direct. Um, it's possible. They have pretty much volunteer studies with other human coronaviruses in the long-term past cold ones said you got one immunity to one and you could still get the other. And two years later, you got the first one. But there may be some background of immunity that is, uh, that in some individuals may be more effective in combination. It's not going to be direct and it's not high level. Uh, some of our studies, you know, Sera and vaccine stuff look like, yeah, there's some background back in there. It's not enough to get you up into the levels strong, but it might be enough in some individuals, particularly if they, maybe if they've had a recent other coronavirus to give them some, I think just another hypothesis we have to test. Do you think when flu comes back around, there may be some sort of co-infection where, uh, Someone that has flu now has a predisposition to being infected um, and getting more sick from SARS-CoV-2 or vice versa. And, you know, well, you can. This is again. Um, these are hypo- These are these are models and theories, and so they can go both ways. One thing is, if you're asking, can a cell be co-infected? Oftentimes, the answer would be no, because uh, if they induce, if, if flu infects a cell and induces interferon in in that cell and the cells around it, then it's going to be highly resistant to infection by other viruses. So that's called super infection exclusion. Can you, if you infect one side of your nose with the coronavirus and one side with flu, can they both replicate? I think it'd be yes. Is that potentially a much infection? Or is yes. Um, or is it possible that a flu is inducing broad immune system to ramp up that you might be more resistant to COVID? That's possible. Um, is if it to, uh, so is one going to exacerbate the other? Yes. Can flu damage the airway? Sure. So can coronaviruses, would that make you more likely to have more damage or more infection? Well, if you breach your mucosal barriers or you damage your anatomy, then I think, sure, you might be more likely to be get more infection or more ill. I think the real concern is the epidemiologic general concern that if you have broad flu circulating that's causing flu-like illness and is causing fever and is spreading in the community and you have COVID at the same time, what are you t- what are you diagnosing? So I think more likely is that you've got both of them co-circulating in the community, which is going to exacerbate the overall numbers, and it's going to be very hard. It's going to be harder to tell what's COVID and what's that's that's what I'm. More yeah, that, that that's called October, November, December, January, February in the United States. Yeah. Well, it was certainly interesting, at least um, you know anecdotally here at at Vanderbilt, um, my colleagues and some of my pediatric colleagues around the world noticed that there was just this absolute, you know, flu and, and RSV, this other bad pediatric pathogen in young kids, typically kind of dwindle and they got a shoulder to kind of dwindle out in February, March, April. You know, these both, when, when, when the shelter in place and things went in place, flu and RSV just dropped off like a cliff. They just disappeared, suggesting that, you know, the same mechanisms have always been capable of being effective at stopping those, but we, they were never implemented, obviously. Well, this is a very charged question. You certainly don't have to answer, but do you think it was warranted? based on the effects so far of SARS-CoV-2 for the shelter in place and for the masks and all this other stuff? Well, it's an end of one experiment. You know, either way I answer, it could be wrong. Do I think it's serious enough? And do I think that this virus has, you know, um, if, if, if let's say there's 10 times more people that have been infected in the U.S. than have been noted and 3 million have been noted. And let's, so let's say there's 30 million. Well, that's still only 10% of the U.S. population, right? Um, right, and, yeah. and could we tolerate could we tolerate that happening? What we're seeing happening some places now, and are we willing to uh, sacrifice uh, take play that experiment with our, our nursing homes and our and our senior population? Um, are we willing to are we willing to roll those dice? Um, and I think where those dice are being rolled, we're seeing the outcomes. So um, do I think you know can we go back and could we have done it differently? I think probably if we could have done anything differently, it might have been more more immediate and draconian, complete 
absolutely requiring masking, absolutely requiring any movement in Europe. If I were going to go anyway, that I think might have gotten us to a better place than we are right now. And I think we have to we have to remember that that you know, get controversial. We have to remember that viruses couldn't give a damn about our liberties, about our constitution, about anything. They don't care. They don't, and they're not even. Not only do they not care, they don't even know they don't care. They're, they're not sentient. Uh, all they do is they replicate and the amount of disease and, and, and errors and problems that they cause are directly related to their adaptation. And they're the fact that the one successful tomorrow is or the one that's here today is the one that was successful yesterday and on and on. So I think, I think the current things about masking are things are absolutely essential. And they're the minimum that we can do to, uh, to help each other, help those who are more vulnerable until we have vaccines and until drugs are ramped up and until we have more combination therapies. to go. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Mark, thanks for coming on the podcast. What's, what's the best way for people to learn more from you? Sounds like you know just a little bit about viruses. So how can people learn more? <laughs> I don't know much about viruses as they know about me. That's what I can tell you. Um, I always say viruses are smarter than virologists and they're definitely, uh, well, never mind. I won't say who they're smarter than. Um, but, um, I think I've done it. Um, some of, more of our stuff related to science has been on a podcast called TWIV, This Week in Virology, which I think is a great okay, website. Okay, cool. It's a great website. And, uh, it's, it's done by, by virologists for virologists, but it's extremely access, accessible. But I think if they look at some of the, um, just Google my name and stuff, and there are several uh, podcasts and webcasts and talks that I've given, but and people are, I, they can find me easily if they're really interested and want to contact me. Well, very good. Mark, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. That was my pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, ask good questions and, and keep up the good work. Thank you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.